was our uh, Cactus Campus and our venue across this campus, as well as those online, uh, all join us for a time of teaching. Let's bow together and ask God's blessing upon this time. Father, uh, we gather here together as the church because we love you, we want to worship you, we love your word, we love your truth, we want to learn more about you so that we might know you and live more fully for you. And so to that end, we pray, we pray that you'd give us insight and wisdom into the words of Jesus as we talk about this all-important subject of eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So as we've been saying all morning, we're going to talk today about heaven. We're going to talk about heaven. And I got to tell you, I feel a little bit like a travel agent when talking about heaven, because I'm going to talk to you about places that I've never been to, and I'm going to dream with you about places that I have never seen. It's like the little boy who was looking at a, his fish floating dead on the top of the water in his fishbowl, and he looked up at his mom, and uh, he said, will my fish go to heaven? And his mom said, well, we'll have to ask the pastor this Sunday. And the little boy said, does he know a lot about fish? <laughs> Some of you didn't get that. Think about it. You'll get it later. Because here's the deal. I speak on prayer uh, and I pray. I speak on God and I, and I seek him. I speak on worry and I tend to worry. Most of the subjects that I get to talk to you about from the Bible are at least subjects that I am somewhat involved in. As I've said to you guys a lot before, I'm in the game with you, and so I don't mind talking about them. But when it comes to heaven, I'm a little bit at a loss. I haven't been there yet, and uh, I hope to get there someday, and I believe I will. We'll talk about that in just a minute, uh, but there's a lot of evidence in the Bible that even when I do get to heaven, I'm not going to come back and tell you about it, uh, because most people, when they get to heaven, in fact, all the evidence is, is that they stay there. And so we're talking about a place today, a reality, if you will, that I have never seen nor been to, and that's uncharted territory, obviously, for me. And so it is at this point that I am extremely thankful, I got to tell you, that we're in a series called What Jesus Said, What Jesus Said. Uh, we're taking a look, as you guys know, at the red letter portions of our Bibles, and we're only interested in this series at what Jesus said about the topics before us. And so if ever there was a topic where you and I should tune out what the world around us says, the topic of heaven, and tune in to what Jesus says, it's this topic of heaven. Because get this, he's been there. The Bible tells us he came from heaven. And as we're going to see in a minute, he went back there. And when he was on this earth, it was a bridge time, a bridge point, where Jesus was here to tell us about heaven and even how to get there. And unlike the topic of anger that we looked at a few weeks ago, where I pointed out that Jesus didn't say all that much on it, or even many other topics, what you need to know is that Jesus talked a lot about heaven. And I mean a lot. There's so many passages to choose from. It was hard for me today to choose what passage are we going to turn to. And though there are a lot of passages in which Jesus talks about heaven, I'm going to just take us to one this morning, but it's one that will more than get us going in our understanding of heaven, and it's found in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. And so if you brought your own Bible, Cactus and Venue, if you have your own Bible, open it up right now to John chapter 14. If you didn't bring your Bible, though it's not on your outline, it will be up here on the screen so we can all have the scriptures in front of us. This is a red letter part of our Bible, John 14, 1 through 6, Jesus is speaking, and this is what he says. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, let not your hearts be troubled. Those are Jesus's opening words here. It's just that you see at this point in, in the original disciples' lives, because there were disciples there, the, the 12, now 11, because Judas had left, they were troubled, very troubled. They had been following Jesus for three years and they had left everything to follow him. They're now in Jerusalem. That's the setting of these words in what would be the last week of Jesus's life. And he had been hinting to this all along, his trial, his arrest, his death, even his resurrection. They had just finished the last supper with Jesus in the upper room where Jesus informed them that he is going away and that where he is going, they cannot come. He was leaving them. Judas had just minutes before been told to go and do what he's going to do in portraying Jesus. Jesus had just seconds before told Peter that he was going to deny him three times. And so there's a lot that is bumming out the disciples here. You got a last supper, a last week, Jesus going away, Judas betraying, Peter denying. And there's a lot of unknowns. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, let not your heart be troubled. And then he talks to them about heaven. Now, that's an interesting tactic, folks. You and I, when we comfort people, we will say to them, maybe let not your heart be troubled, but we don't usually then go right into a discussion about heaven. We kind of be accused, as we'll talk about in a minute here, of being kind of pie in the sky, too heavenly minded for being earthly good, but Jesus doesn't believe that. No, he talks to them about heaven. Uh, pause in front of that for a second. Here's what we learn from that. Sometimes when you and I are really bummed out about our circumstances here on earth, God wants us to think about heaven. He, he really does. But we're going to see more what this means in just a minute, but suffice it to say that there are numerous times in the Bible and I mean, it's all over the place where the players were discouraged about their circumstances on earth. And though they didn't ignore them or deny them, I mean, they'd work through them. Nevertheless, God directed their sights in the midst of all of their uh, difficult circumstances to the reality that this world is not all that there is. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the shadow lands. And that there's another world that we were made for. And that in the difficult times in life, it's good to think and ponder that world. So King David is dealing with the difficulties of leading Israel. And so what does he do? He writes a psalm. And at the end of the psalm, he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Paul is tired of all the persecution and hardship of being a missionary and a church planter. And so what does he write? For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. And he's thinking about heaven. Peter is frustrated with all of the pastoral difficulties that he has to face in all these new churches. And he's writing to churches that are facing all kinds of suffering. And what does he say? Hey, you guys got an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, waiting and kept for you in heaven. John is stranded on a lonely island at the end of his life, the island of Patmos. And what does he do? He writes an entire book, say it with me, on heaven. 
It's called the revelation. You, you get the idea. Uh, sometimes when life becomes very raw, and even as we're going to see when it doesn't, God wants us to dwell in a healthy way, not just on the here and now, but on what is to come and what eternity is going to be like for those who follow him. Let not your hearts be troubled, and let's talk about heaven. Now, what does Jesus then say about heaven? I want you to notice with me two key things that Jesus tells us here about heaven that can make all the difference in our worldview as Christians, as followers of Jesus. So first, notice with us that he tells us that heaven is real and that you're going to want to be there. <laughs> That's what he says. That heaven is real and you're going to want to be there. Look at verses 2 and 3 of John 14, right on the heels of let not your hearts be troubled. This is what he says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So notice with me, in, in these two verses here, that there are three things going on that Jesus gives us. He gives us a picture, he gives us a promise, and he gives us a prompting. If you can remember that, you can remember these verses. A picture, a promise, and a prompting. First, notice he gives us here a picture. In describing heaven, he gives us a picture, and many argue a literal picture, of a house with many rooms. That word house in the Greek is the Greek word oikia, and it literally means a house. <laughs> very, very common word back then. It meant a domicile, a dwelling. Just like if you and I were to use the word house today, we all know what that means. It's just a physical structure in which one lives in. And obviously here, Jesus is giving us an allusion to heaven. I like how Leon Morris says it in his commentary on John. He says, and I quote, this is clearly referring to heaven. No commentator of any worth disagrees with that. Some have tried to posit over the years some more liberal-minded people that maybe he's talking about the church or the people of God or something like that, but no. Why would he say, I go to prepare a place for you that you're going to see me at in the future? Obviously, he's referring here to heaven. But what's most interesting is what he says next. He says, in my Father's house, heaven, are many rooms many rooms. And now Jesus, or John, in describing Jesus' words here, uses a very, very obscure Greek word. It's the Greek word mona here that's only used twice in the New Testament, but we know a lot about this word outside of the New Testament. And this word literally means, now don't miss this, a stopping place. We translate it room here, but it's richer than that. It means a room that is a stopping place. It means to remain in a place. This word carries a strong sense of permanence to it. So it's picturing you and I going to a room, but this room is now our room. And this is a room where we are permanently going to stay in and reside in. It's our place. And so what most Bible experts point out is that this word is less about location. It's not a locative word telling us where heaven is. No, it's a word describing the nature of heaven, that heaven is a permanent place. It's our permanent resting place. And notice that there are many rooms like this. Now that's important, that word many. Jesus is making clear that there's room to spare for any and all that want to be there. So you got a house 
with many rooms. That's the picture that Jesus gives us here, a permanent place that he is reserving for us. And though some argue that this is a rather cryptic description of heaven given by Jesus here, like, can't you give us more detail than that? What you need to know, and I said this earlier to you, earlier to you is that the Bible in other places gives us a lot more detail about heaven. You know, people always have questions about heaven. Am I going to see my family there? What are we going to do in heaven? And, and things like that. And then people say, well, the Bible never really answers that. Well, you obviously haven't read it. I, I mean, it does. Now, let me just give you an example here. Isaiah chapter 65. Bet you didn't have your quiet time in Isaiah 65 this week, but you should have. Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25, say this about heaven. And you tell me if this isn't filled with detail. Just listen. The prophet says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. For behold, I create a new Jerusalem. By the way, Revelation tells us it's all about heaven. A new Jerusalem to be a joy. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more shall be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and have another inhabit. They shall not plant and have another eat. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands." Before they call, I will answer them. While they are yet speaking, I will hear them. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt nor destroy. Wow. A lot of detail there about heaven. If you're listening close, even though there's some imagery there, it's telling us that in heaven, there's going to be lots of fellowship. We are going to see friends and family who have gone there before us. There's going to be worship. It's a place where the glory of God is there. It will be pure joy. No more weeping. It'll be pure justice. Animals that have nothing to do with each other will actually be lying down with each other. It'll be beauty. There'll be work and productivity in heaven. Every theologian points that out. Some people say to me, you know, is heaven just going to be this boring place where we all sing for all of eternity? And I sit there and say, well, let me answer that twofold. One, no. But even if it was, you're going to be a renewed person so you'd enjoy it, right? I mean, that's the way we got to think of heaven. The Bible goes on to say that in heaven we get a new name with a new body. And so heaven is a perfect place for all of eternity with God and you're going to like it if you end up going there. He says, trust me, you won't be bored. And he gives us lots of glimpses on what heaven is like. It's beyond today's message, but for those of you who would like maybe a lot more detail about heaven, write this URL down, Cactus and Venue. Look up on your screens here. Give me a click, guys. Boom. There you go. Uh, it's www.epm.org. And I gave you the rest for this one article, but if you can just remember epm.org, that stands for Eternal Perspectives Ministry. It's Randy Alcorn's website. He's written a book on heaven. And if you follow that URL all the way there, uh, there's an article that's eight pages long that is just chock full of biblical references, 51 different statements about heaven. I read it this week and I as I'm going to say here in a second here, I, I long now to be there even more because it just tells, it, Randy goes through all the different scriptural evidence talking about 
uh, what heaven is going to be like, and he answers a lot of questions that we have about it. Again, just filled with scripture information. It's not his idea, it's from the Bible. And so you get the idea here. Jesus gives us a picture of heaven, my father's house with many rooms. That's what awaits us. Uh, But then, moving on, notice that Jesus further gives us a promise, a promise about heaven. He says there in verse 2, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In other words, he's saying I'm not lying. It's real. And I'm going ahead of you to prepare this place for you, and you can count on it. So I like how one Bible expert says it. He says this is a, and I quote, a promise of reception that Jesus is promising us here, that he is going to go ahead of us, that he's preparing this place called heaven for us, and that he's going to receive us to himself. And and so when I see that image, I I think of a movie I saw years ago. It wasn't actually the best movie I've ever seen, but but it proves the point here. It it was called Waterworld with Kevin Costner. Some of you might have seen. Remember that movie? And it really did bad in the ratings, but it's like, it's got a little bit of a cult following and, and people talk about that movie every once in a while. And the theme of the movie is that the whole world is covered by water. And so imagine trying to have to live on a boat all of your life. And so all of humanity, what's left is having to live on, on, on boats. But there's a small contingency of people who have heard rumors about a place called dry land. And the whole movie is about their search for dry land, and spoiler alert, they find it at the end of the movie and and prove that there really is such a thing called dry land that is a much better place than wetland. I, I think that's what Jesus is trying to get us to see here, that there truly is a place called dry land in the midst of all of our wetness on this earth here, and that it really is real. And those we're going to say in a minute here, there are some who are going to try to talk you out of it and try to get you to see that they think heaven is a pipe dream and a wish fulfillment and things like that. You're not going to want to have anything to do with that. Why? Because your Savior has promised you that this place is real. Amen? Let's take another run at that. Because your Savior has promised you that this place is real. Amen? He really has. And that should be enough to assuage any fears that we might have. So you got a picture, you got a promise, and then he caps off this description of heaven by giving us a prompting. And this is powerful. Look at verse three. He says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. It will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Don't miss this, folks. He's trying to entice us to want to go there baiting us, prompting us. He's basically saying, I am going to be in this place for all of eternity, and I sure hope that you are there and that you even want to be there. And that's the point of all of this, that heaven, for those of us who are still caught here on earth, is to be the kind of place that we long for, that we should want to be there someday as followers of Jesus, and that it's good and right to think about it, ponder it, imagine it, even allow our souls to long for it. And once again, what you need to know is that this is all over the Bible. This is patternistic. That that, that when people hit rough waters in life, even when they didn't, even things were going great, they longed for the eternal world. 
So Hebrews 11 verse 16, in talking about the Old Testament saints, says this, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, for God has prepared for them a city. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, for in this tent, meaning our body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Or as Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, make very clear, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And I just got to tell you, folks, this flies in the face of everything that we are told today in the world around us, and it takes real men and women of God to be able to live like this. Real men and women who take Jesus at his word and say, yes, heaven is real, and I do want to go there, and I'm even going to train my soul to start to long for it. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, I think we all have, uh, so-and-so is so heavenly-minded that they aren't any earthly good? Uh, You ever heard that phrase? Like all of us have. Did did you know that that phrase is not in the Bible? Give me a head now that y'all know that. I mean, not only is that not in the Bible, but it's actually anti-Bible. I I mean, I could never imagine. Can you imagine coming up to Paul the Apostle and and saying, hey, Paul, I just got to tell you something. You know, Timothy, he's just so heavenly-minded. He's no earthly good. Paul would have said, get out. (laughs) It's not even the way that, that biblical people ever think that you could be so heavenly minded that you're not any earthly good. It's a lie. In fact, the opposite is true. We have evidence that it's actually those who have a right and healthy view of heaven who are the most helpful here on earth. C.S. Lewis in his generation back in the 50s and 60s of the 1900s uh, dealt with the same kind of culture that you and I deal with today. He was accused uh, by his fellow Oxford teachers of being a Christian and being somebody who was so heavenly minded that they're not earthly good and you know, da, da, da. Now, look at what he says uh, about this subject. I have found this helpful over the years. Look up here on the screen, Cactus and Venue, look at your screens. He says that it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so effective in this one. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. He says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. (laughs) I think he's right. I, I, I think you and I, if we take nothing else out of our look at John 14 today, need to walk away with the understanding that at the very least, heaven is real and God wants us to think about it often, and even allow our souls to long for it. Uh, John Orberg tells a wonderful story in one of his books about Lewis Smedes, who was a longtime professor of theology at Fuller Seminary. And when Smedes was alive, as Orberg tells the story, he used to ask his students if they wanted to go to heaven when they died. And you can picture the scene. Every one of these seminary students would raise their hand and say, yeah, I'd like to go to heaven. But then he'd ask a quick follow-up question. He'd say, do you want to go to heaven today? And when he'd ask that question, there'd be like one or two seminary students that would be raising their hand very slowly and, and kind of looking around to see if they're getting the answer right. And, and Smeeds would kind of smile and he'd say, well, let me ask it another way. He'd say, let's switch gears. He'd say, how many of us would like to see the world set straight once and for all? No more common colds, no more uncommon cancers, hungry people would have plenty, no one would lift a finger to harm another, we'd be at peace with everyone, even with ourselves. 
He then would ask anybody interested in that. And once again, all the hands in the seminary class would go up. And then Smeads would point out that if that's the world they really want, then they better start longing for heaven. Because that's exactly what God has in plan for the next world. And that as the old hymn writers say, we're just passing through. As Isaiah the prophet would say, you maybe get 90 or 100 years on this earth, and if you reach that ripe old age, you're like a blade of grass. Here today and gone tomorrow. But eternity lasts forever. And you were made for eternity, for another place. And God wants us to think about that. That's what Jesus teaches us. Now, before we go to the communion table, there is a, another thing, a second thing concerning heaven that Jesus spends some time on in these verses making clear. And interestingly, it doesn't have to do with a description about heaven. It has much more to do with some instructions on how to get to heaven. And it's not complicated what Jesus says here. It's just destiny altering. And this is what he says. Heaven is secured by belief or faith or trust in Jesus Christ. It's a touchy subject today for some, <laughs> but Jesus, as you're going to see, uh, is crystal clear in this one, that heaven is secured by faith, belief, trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, so look at the bookends of this teaching that Jesus gives us here. Look one last time at verses 1 and then 4 through 6. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Then down to verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So back up verse 1 again. Let not your hearts be troubled. And then he says, believe in God, believe also in me. What's fascinating about the construction of Jesus' words there is it's what Bible experts call a double imperative, a double imperative. Simply put, both of those statements are in the imperative tense, meaning that they're commands, and they are absolutely parallel in nature. They're parallel grammatically, and they're parallel in this context, talking about the same thing. And so he's saying, believe in God, believe also in me, a double imperative. And the question that you and I should be asking, that any seeker should ask, is why both? I mean, everybody gets you need to believe in God, but why is Jesus here saying believe in God and believe in him? And I love how B.F. Westcott, a longtime professor at Cambridge University years ago, says it in his commentary on John. Look up here on the screen. This is good. He says, and I quote, the simultaneous injunction of faith in God and in Christ under the same conditions implies the divinity of Christ. So do you see what he's saying there? That when you get the same command, under the same conditions, meaning the same grammatical conditions, as well as in this context, the same discussion about how to get to heaven, he's saying the only conclusion we can have is that Jesus is putting himself on par with God. In other words, we're getting the implication of the Trinity here. When people say to me, why Jesus? Why do I have to have faith in Jesus? The answer is not complicated, because he's God. He makes that really clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, say it with me, God. That Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. I preexisted. Hebrews 1. He's the image of the invisible God. I mean, it's all over the New Testament. It's actually inarguable. But that's the logic, is that God came to earth. 
That's why we celebrate Christmas. And when he came to earth, he did something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Namely, forgive us of our sin before God, before himself. So he went to a wooden cross. That's what Passion Week is about. And he died for our sins. And then he rose from the dead. Why? Because he's God. And then he ascended back into heaven where the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit reigns. I mean, that's the gospel. And that's what Jesus is laying out here. That's why he says, believe in God, believe also in me. And then to hammer that home, you got doubting Thomas here. And I love Thomas. I mean, he's like the critical thinker of the bunch. And Thomas in verses four and five says, well, you know, point of order. I mean, you know, this is kind of all new to us. We're just learning about heaven, Jesus. And, you know, you really haven't told us yet how to get there. So how should we know the way? And then Jesus doesn't mince any words. Look one last time at verse six. He says, here's the deal, Thomas. I'm the way. I am the truth. I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. I am the pathway to God. I am all that is eternal and absolute when it comes to truth. And I'm the entire sum of being. I am life. And the reality is, is that it's through Jesus that we secure eternal life. The Bible is so clear on that. You know, I've heard all the arguments over the years when it comes to this, and we live in such a tolerance-laden, multicultural world today that many times, and maybe you're one of these people, people say, well, gosh, I, mean, I get the Bible says that, Jamie, but man, that's just so narrow, and it's just so exclusive, and you know, I mean, I, it's so small-minded, you know, and, and you hear all these things, like you got five major world religions, and Christianity is one of them, and you're basically saying that it's through Jesus that he's the only way. And though we can tell people that we're actually not the one saying that, that Jesus is the one who said that, uh, the reality is I think we need to have a more intelligent answer than that. And I'm indebted to Ravi Zacharias over the years who has done a lot of philosophical discussion on the issue of exclusivity and inclusivity. In other words, the gospel does make an exclusive claim, meaning that only through Jesus can one be assured of heaven. Uh, but Ravi Zacharias argues that from God's vantage point, it's the most inclusive thing God could ever do. So, th so this is my statement you're going to see on the screen here, but it's really just kind of a compilation of what Zacharias has argued for years. Look up on the screen. He, he essentially says this, that the exclusivity of faith in Jesus ensures the potential inclusivity of all humanity. Do you understand what he means by that? Though some say, oh my gosh, it's so exclusive. I mean, only through Jesus? You say, yeah, that's exactly why. But, but think of the reason why. Because all humanity is lost in their sin, incapable of their own self-salvation. So God had to reach out to them in some way, and he's done so through coming to earth himself as the second person of the Trinity to die for our sins. And he's opened the barn doors wide and said, come ye, come all, have faith and trust in me. It's absolutely inclusive. I mean, it's exclusive in one sense, given all the other worldviews out there today, man-made human religion, but the reality is, is that it's exclusive because God wants to be inclusive of any and all that would come to him. As the scriptural writers would go on to say, it's God's hope that all would be saved and come to repentance. And that was the point of coming to earth here. And so the reality is, is that though some see it as exclusive, we need to help turn the tables a little bit and say, nah, it's actually very inclusive. 
God was thinking of you when he came in Jesus. And he's opened up the barn doors real wide so that you and all your friends can come in. It's just that, yeah, you do got to come on his terms because that's the way God is. You know, we live in a world today in which there are people that, you know, just laugh at the idea of heaven. That they just say, you know, they're naturalists or maybe they're agnostics. And that worldview is increasing tremendously today. And they just think we're nuts for believing in a life after this life. I love what Henry Nouwen did before he died. Nouwen, in one of his last books, told a parable uh, about two twins in the womb. And that if these two twins could talk to each other, it's a parable, uh, this might be what they say. And, and, and I love this parable. I'm going to close with this. Uh, the sister said to the brother, I believe there is life after birth. Her brother protested vehemently, no, no, this is all there is. This is a dark and cozy place and we have nothing else to do but cling to this cord that feeds us. The little girl insisted, well, there has to be something more than this dark place. There must be something else, a place where light and freedom can exist. Still, she could not convince her twin brother. After some silence, the sister said hesitantly, I have something else to say. I'm afraid you won't believe this either, but I think that there's a mother. Her brother became furious. A mother? What are you talking about? I've never seen a mother and neither have you. Who put that idea into your head? As I told you, this place is all that we have. Why do you always want more? This is not such a bad place after all. We have all we need, so let's just be content. The sister was quite overwhelmed by her brother's response and for a while didn't dare say anything more. But she couldn't let go of her thoughts and since she had only her twin brother to speak to, she finally said, don't you feel those squeezes every once in a while? They're quite unpleasant and sometimes even painful. Yes, he said, what's so special about that? Well, the sister said, I think that these squeezes are there to get us ready for another place much more beautiful than this, where we will see our mother face to face. Don't you think that's exciting? The brother didn't answer. He was fed up with the foolish talk of his sister and felt that the best thing would be to simply ignore her and hope that she would leave him alone. See, here's the deal. I think you and I, well, I know you and I, according to the Bible, have gone from one womb now to another womb. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. That years ago, whether it was 80 years or 20 years, however old you are, you were in a womb. And just if you could have thought and talked then, you might have thought, well, maybe this is it. But then you were born into a beautiful world with a real mother and a real father and a real family and, and everything, you know, started to become color again. The reality is the Bible comes along and says, but you're still in a womb now. You're not done yet. This is still a womb, this world, and it's a very fallen womb. And God has one more birth planned for you. And it's a birth that's going to come through accepting Jesus Christ, what Jesus taught us as a new birth. And then it's going to be a birth that happens when your body stops working here now and you're born, if you will, into eternity. And he says, and the best way for you to live now is to long for what that will be like to realize you were made ultimately for that place and to embrace Jesus and all that he said and he is because he is the life, he is the way, he is the truth for how you get to eternity. 
Pat's going to lead us in communion here, and then Rick and Rustin will be leading in communion in the, in the venue in Cactus. But before I do that, I want to pray with you. And as I pray with you, I want to pray for some of you who are ready to receive Christ today. That you're ready to trust in Him as your Savior and as your Lord, right where you sit. And so let's bow here, Cactus and Venue, let's bow. And, and then we'll go to our communion tables. Father God, I thank you for the teachings of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he taught in parables, still taught in such a clear, life-giving way, helping us understand uh, what re spiritual and relational realities are about. And I pray, God, that as we've gotten a glimpse, just a little peek under the hood into what heaven is going to be like, that God, that would cause a stirring in our hearts and our minds to long for that place, to realize we were made for another, and that though we don't give up on this world, though we don't turn our back on this world, we, we live as pilgrims who are just traveling through the shadowlands, looking and longing for the real place. God, I pray that if there are some here today in a cactus and venue that um, are ready to embrace eternity for the very first time through embracing your son, Jesus Christ, then right where they sit, they simply breathe this prayer. They say, oh God, I thank you that you love me, that you made me, that you've never given up on me, but I realize I'm a fallen sinner separated from you, even from birth. And I realize that it's your forgiveness that I need to come into a right relationship with you, and so I embrace Jesus Christ as my Savior and as my Lord, as my leader and my forgiver, as the only one who can forgive me of my sin and bring me into eternal life with you. And I accept you now where I sit as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that if any would pray a prayer like that this morning, that you'd give them that initial burst of joy that you were theirs and they are yours, that if you've crossed over from death to life, from darkness into light, that their lives will never be the same. And may they have that assurance here today. And so Lord, as we look forward to this table before us, God, would you bless us? And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.